2: Life is a never-ending series of decisions, and being faced with an endless procession of moral dilemmas, personal preferences, and potential outcomes. Without a decision, our lives cannot move forwards or backwards. They simply stall and stagnate. We make billions of decisions every day, from the clothes we wear, to the food we eat, to the places we go, to the people we see. With each decision ranging from the massive the middling to the microscopic, from the birth of a baby to the blink of an eye. And yet, conscious or not, everything is decided. Each decision has two outcomes, right or wrong, with varying degrees of success or failure in between. And although our choices are often based on prior knowledge and experience garnered from similar circumstances, sometimes we still make the wrong decision for what we feel is the right reason. If we learn from our mistakes, bad decisions can make us stronger, wiser and braver. They can make us, but they can also break us. With even the most inconsequential decisions proving fatal. During the murders of Ruth First, Muriel Eady, Beryl and Geraldine Evans, one other person beyond Reg Christie was a resident at 10 Wellington Place. But being sweet, polite and timid, she remained hidden in her husband's shadow. And yet 20 years earlier, when her life had hit a crossroads, she had made a bad decision for good reasons, which would bring about her death. Some of what follows is based on the killer's own memories and perspectives. So what part of this story is true is up to you. My name is Michael, I'm your tour guide, this is Murder Mile, and I present to you part six of the full, true and untold story of the other side of 10 Rillington Place. Today, I'm standing one street east of Rillington Place, on the junction of Ladbroke Grove and Lancaster Road. On the northwest corner is the boarded-up remnants of the KPH Public House. On the northeast corner is the floristry shop where David Griffin's refreshment room once stood. And on the southeast corner is the North Kensington Public Library at 108 Labra Grove. Opened in 1891, after the Public Libraries Act of 1850 gave each borough in the United Kingdom the power to provide everyone regardless of age, race, sex or gender, with books, knowledge and an education for life. North Kensington was one of London's first public libraries. As an imposing two-storey building, with long ominous windows, black wrought-iron gates and a dark shadowy door, as it looms over the street like a screaming face, it doesn't look welcoming. But with the inside being outdated, Like most libraries, it's mostly empty, except for several soft seats which soak up old people's whittle, a musty damp smell which could easily be a dead tramp, a moaning Minnie going shush at the tinnitus in her ears, an old deer getting moist over the mere mention of a trouser protuberance in a Mills and Boon, and a backwards boy ending up bent double owing to a brief flash of boob in a photography book. Ah, great days, Michael, great days. Sadly, with plans to turn it into a prep school for posh little shits, the taxpaying public are being booted out as the seeds of Satan with silver spoons up their sphincters are moved in, paying almost six grand a term to be educated and entirely defeating the reason why the library was built. And yet, it was here in the peace and solitude of north kensington library clutching a well-thumbed copy of the penny poets that ethel christie came to escape having married a murderer at 9:45 p.m. on friday the 2nd of december 1949 in notting hill police station timothy john evans made his third and final confession
1: She was incurring one debt after another, and I couldn't stand it no longer. I came home about 6.30pm. She started to argue and threw a bottle of milk at me, so I hit her across the face with the flat of my hand. In a fit of temper, I grabbed a piece of rope and strangled her with it. When I knew everything was quiet, I wrapped my wife's body in a green tablecloth. I tied it with a piece of cord carried her down to the wash house, placed it under the sink and blocked it in with pieces of wood. I locked the wash house door and I slipped back upstairs while the Christies were still in bed. On Thursday evening, I got my baby from her cot. I picked up my tie and I strangled her with it. And in a strangely
2: detailed confession which the exhausted and grief-stricken husband, father and fantasist had made only after the police had informed him how, where and when the bodies of his wife and baby were found. Having signed his confession as accurate and true, Tim the Terrible Liar sighed, It's a great relief to get it off my chest. I feel better already. And with that, Timothy John Evans was charged with the murders of Beryl and Geraldine Evans, the case was closed. Prior to the 2nd of December 1949 10 Rillington Place was just an anonymous tumble-down terraced house tucked away in a gloomy dead end amidst the craters rubble and waste of West London. But now it was infamous and with two constables stood guard by the wash house two posted by the front door and several having cordoned off the street to hold back the throng of gawkers, gossips and giggling kids, as the rapid burst of flashbulbs bathed the unlit street in a blinding white light. Into an ambulance were loaded two corpses, both curled up, one as big as a bundle of rags, one as small as a shoebox. In the front room, The Christie's sat several feet apart, Ethel on the sofa, Reg in his armchair. His face giddy with glee as he snipped cuttings about the Evans killings from the newspaper, circled his name, and stashed each article in his little brown suitcase of treasured memories. Being a timid and fragile lady, with frayed nerves, sullen eyes, and a haggard face, Ethel tried to hide from the horror of the last few days with a hot tea a roaring fire, and a book of poetry. But with her home, sullied by a fetid stench, every time she breathed, she smelled death. Ethel looked older than her 51 years, and being a shadow of her former self, all that was left was a pale, dowdy, and downtrodden woman haunted by three decades of bad decisions. Ethel, he's only gone and killed the baby. No, Tim wouldn't, do that. Oh, Tim wouldn't do that. I'm telling you, I'm that's telling you, what he's gone and done. Gone and Strangled done. them both. As a migraine creeped in, with no kiss, hug or eye contact, Ethel muttered, I'm off to bed now. Night, Reg. Which he ignored, as he snipped another cutting about the killings. And as her slippers shuffled down the dark drab hall, past the deck chair, the gas stove, the glass square jar the length of rope, the wash house, the fence propped up by half a human thigh bone, and the garden where two bodies still rotted in shallow graves. As Ethel curled up on the bed, her portly frame nestled into the deep recess of the mattress, where Ruth first was strangled, and soon Ethel would be too. Ethel Simpson was born on the 28th of March, 1898. The youngest of three children, to William, the foreman at an iron foundry, and Amy, a full-time mother, with older siblings, Henry and Lily. As an upper working-class family, raised in the industrial town of Halifax, West Yorkshire, with a proud father who protected his flock and ensured their safety and stability, a doting mother who kept her brood warm, safe and well-fed, and all three siblings having developed a strong, stable bond, which would remain till their dying days, Ethel couldn't have asked for a better start. Sadly, in 1904, tragedy struck when William died. And with his untimely death, having left Amy with Henry aged 10, Lily aged 5, and Ethel aged just 3, living in an era which was unjust to single mothers, life could have collapsed. But with William having provided for their future, Amy being their rock and the siblings being close, the Simpson family weathered this tragedy and flourished. Described as refined, well-bred and educated, although she lived in the stifling surroundings of a post-Victorian era, Ethel was very much a modern woman. She was self-sufficient, Having started work aged 13 as a milliner's assistant, she was skilled, being trained in shorthand, and being blessed with her father's work ethic and her mother's family bond, being a deeply maternal woman with a dream that, one day, she would have a family of her own. Although timid and reserved, Ethel was intelligent. As a child, Ethel was instilled with a deep love of poetry, absorbing the literary greats like Shakespeare, Robert Burns, John Keats, Walter Scott and Elizabeth Barrett Browning, which fueled her sensitive heart with dreams of romance. And as a keen writer with a lifelong love of language, every Christmas and birthday, without fail, Ethel would send cards to her friends, family and co-workers, having signed it from Ethel, and later in life, from Ethel and Reg. Eager to find true love, being a shapely petite brunette with a warm smile, soft skin and a motherly nature, who was impeccably dressed, well-spoken and always polite, Ethel easily attracted the attention of men. But being such a romantic soul, she needed this man to be special. But in the autumn of 1919, whilst working as a typist for John Sutcliffe's woollen mill, Ethel met a young clerk. He was kind, caring and a good listener. A bespectacled man with a small frame, a sweet nature and a soft whispering voice. And as a decorated war hero, with dreams of continuing his training as a doctor, soon she began to trust him and to love him. The young clerk's name was John. But I prefer it if you call me Reg. Eight months later on the 10th of May 1920 in Halifax registry office Miss Ethel Simpson became Mrs Ethel Christie and in the first of three bad decisions made for good reasons she married her murderer. Married life for the Christie's started badly. Having moved into a cosy little flat at number 9 Brunswick Road in Halifax. Although they ate well and the rent was paid, it was Ethel's strong work ethic and her secretarial skills for Garside Engineering in Bradford which kept them afloat. As with Reg living off a disability award of just 8 shillings a week and unable to hold down a regular job for more than a few months, Ethel became the breadwinner, whilst Reg was always broke with her sister Lily having given birth to a baby boy called Edwin, and as a deeply maternal woman who wanted to become a mum, with Reg plagued with impotence, the Christie's struggled to conceive. And even though, after many months of stress and failure, a baby began to grow inside Ethel, having cruelly suffered a miscarriage, their hopes of having a family fell apart. And as their marital bed chilled, their love life became distant, cold and unaffectionate. Then, on the 12th of April 1921, 11 months into their marriage, as Ethel grieved the loss of her baby, Reg was found guilty of stealing postal orders whilst working as a postman and sentenced to three months hard labor in Strangeways Prison. Although shocked, Ethel supported her husband throughout but having later been sentenced to a further 12 months probation for obtaining money under false pretenses, after his second conviction on the 15th of January 1924, Reg deserted his wife and disappeared from her life with no goodbye, no excuse and no reason. Reg Christie had simply vanished. Married for just two and a half years, Although distraught, being a strong, skilled and self-sufficient woman who was educated, refined and attractive, Ethel was given a second chance at a new life. In 1924, Ethel worked as a typist for the English Electric Company in Bradford. She was quiet but polite, friendly but reserved, and remaining loyal to her colleagues and the company even after she was laid off. Every year... For the rest of her life, she would send them all a Christmas card. Signed from Ethel. In 1928, having moved in with her brother Henry at number 63 Hindhouse Lane in Sheffield, and with her sister Lily, brother-in-law Arthur, and nephew Edwin at number 61, she was surrounded by family. That same year, whilst dancing at the Abbeydale Ballroom, Ethel met and fell in love with a prosperous businessman called Vaughan Brindley, and just like her, he was loyal, quiet and loving. He didn't drink, smoke or lie, and best of all, he made her happy. For those four years, Ethel's life was bliss. She had a steady job as a typist at Savile Steelworks. She lived side by side with her beloved siblings and being besotted by Ethel, Vaughan Brindley began to talk of wedding bells and babies, in a life which would have been pure poetry. But Ethel had lied. Stunned by the revelations that she wasn't a widow, that Reg wasn't dead, that she was still married, and that she could never have children. As his business collapsed, so did their love affair. And as a deeply moral woman, weighed down by guilt and failure, in the second of three bad decisions made for good reasons, she gave Reg one last chance. In February 1934, nine years after he had deserted her, Ethel travelled from Sheffield to South London to see her husband. He was thinner, smaller and paler. And with thick glasses, false teeth and a bald head, he looked feeble and pathetic. And being dressed in ill-fitting blue fatigues, having come to the end of a three-month sentence for car theft in Wandsworth Prison and two prior offences for larceny and malicious wounding, Reg apologised and promised that, if she took him back, he would change. And he did. Turning his back on petty crime, across the next 20 years of their marriage, he held down three full-time jobs, as a cinema doorman at the Commodore, a driver for ultra-electric, and a clerk for the post office. He served his country during wartime as a special constable, And as a law-abiding, teetotal, respectable married man with a love of animals and gardening, he remained by her side. In December 1938, having lived on the second floor since the summer, as the Smith family moved out, Ethel and Reg Christie moved into the ground-floor flat of an old Victorian terrace. It wasn't a great flat. The bricks crumbled, the floors creaked and the walls shook as the tube trains thundered by and with no electric lights, only gas a garden with no privacy and a washhouse and lavatory shared with the other tenants it wasn't much but to Ethel, Reg and their dog Judy 10 Rillington Place was home and yet this new veneer of respectability helped her husband to hide his darker side. And as the years went on, lacking any love, romance or affection, as the stresses and strains of married life took their toll, Ethel went from slim to rotund, elegant to frumpy and attractive to sallow. And as her health deteriorated, being plagued with migraines, rheumatism and varicose veins, she retreated into solitude, silence and remained hidden in her husband's shadow. In the sanctuary of the North Kensington Library, Ethel whiled away many hours, absorbing poetry and writing letters to friends and family. Her words were always heartfelt, her wishes were always thoughtful, and her kisses were always true. But as a deeply private woman, she never expressed the fears that she faced. With war declared and their marriage strained, the safety of the library wasn't enough. And as Ethel stays with her siblings, Henry and Lily, grew longer and more frequent, she never spoke ill of Reg. Not once, during the twenty years, that they lived under the same roof, sat in the same chairs, or slept in the same bed. But the signs were there. The loose floorboards under the front room The uneven bumps in the back garden, the locked brown suitcase under the sofa, Judy digging up unusual bones, the milky white stick that propped up the fence, the strange stains on her bedsheets, the deck chair with the missing length of rope, the square glass jar with the rubber tubing, and his obsession with Beryl Evans, who he often spied on through a hole in the kitchen door. So what Ethel actually knew, we shall never know. But on Tuesday the 8th of November 1949, as she lay in the deep recess of her once badly stained double bed, she may have heard this. Here, give us a hand, lad. From two floors above. And two days later. Ethel, he's only gone and killed the baby. And killed the baby. No, Tim do that. no, Tim wouldn't do that. I'm telling you. That's what he's gone and done. Strangled them both. It was shortly after that, in the winter of 1949, that Ethel's trips to see her siblings suddenly stopped. And in the third of three bad decisions, made for good reasons, whether through loyalty or fear, Ethel Christie lied to protect her husband. On the 11th of January, 1950, in court one of the Old Bailey, Timothy John Evans, you stand accused of the murder of your wife and daughter. How do you plead?
1: Not guilty.
2: And with that, the prosecution called their chief witness, who, unlike Tim the Terrible Liar, was a happily married man, 29 years to be precise, a former special constable, commended twice, and a decorated war hero awarded the British War and Victory Medal. In court, Christie stated, About midnight, my wife and I were startled by a bang. I heard something very heavy being moved. I don't think I saw Timothy Evans on the Wednesday till about 11pm. I was in my bedroom, he was coming in, and my wife put the hall light on. Beryl and the baby weren't with him. I asked him where they were, and he said they'd gone to Bristol. When asked if he had any training as a doctor, Christy replied, No. When asked if he knew a young couple in Acton, Christy replied, No. When asked if he had performed an abortion on Beryl Evans, Christy replied, No. All of which was the truth, and his story was corroborated in court by Ethel. On the 14th of January, 1950, after three days of evidence, including a stained green tablecloth, a set of pink baby clothes, a man's blue tie with a red stripe, and three false confessions made to the police, after just 40 minutes of deliberation, Timothy John Evans was found guilty of murder. And although Tim was an easily led boy, with a wild imagination, a volatile temper, and a limited grasp on reality, who was barely literate, had an IQ of just 65, and the mental age of an 11 year old, prison doctors deemed him mentally capable and punishable for his crimes. On the 9th of March 1950, at 9am, in the cold grey execution chamber of Pentonville Prison. Albert Pierpoint, a master of his craft, so skilled that a convict could go from sitting down in a seat to dangling from a rope in just seven seconds, placed the prisoner on a twin-trap door, and with an eight-foot drop, a sudden stop, two fractured vertebrae and a severed spinal cord, Timothy John Evans was dead. An innocent man had been hung, a guilty man had walked free, and no one was any the wiser but Ethel. For the next two years, she remained with Reg in the dank, dark ruins of 10 Rillington Place. The carpets were as frayed as her nerves, the bricks as broken as her heart, and the walls dripped with the fetid stench of death, as their home, the street, and their names... Were forever besmirched by the murders. Growing fatter, weaker, and paler, as the stresses and strains of sharing a roof, a room, and a bed, with a liar, a fantasist, and a sexual sadist, ate at her soul. Being too sick to work, too scared to sleep, and with their arguments occurring almost nightly, fifty-four-year-old Ethel Christie was plagued by migraines. On Friday the 12th of December 1952, Ethel dropped off a quilt, a bedsheet, and two pillowcases to Maxwell Laundries at 138 Woolmer Road. She received a receipt, but never collected them. Later, she returned a copy of Penny Poets No. 2 to the North Kensington Public Library, but she never took another book out. On the Saturday, she watched television with Rosina Swan at Number 9, Rillington Place, an almost daily event which would never happen again. And oddly, that Christmas, Ethel Christie would only send one card to one person, her sister Lily, and with her rheumatism having supposedly crippled her hands, the card was written by Reg. on the morning of Sunday the 14th of December 1952. I remember waking, and finding her shaking violently. Her face was all blue when she was choking. I tried to restore her breathing, but it was hopeless. I got out of bed, and there was this bottle of blue capsules, which I had got from the hospital for my insomnia. Beside it was half a cup of water, and only two pills were left when there should have been twenty-five. It were too late to call for assistance. I couldn't bear to see her like this. So I got a stocking, tied it round her neck, and put her to sleep. And there she lay, on the bed, for several days, all bloated and blue, a black stocking tied tight and buried deep into her swollen neck. And with a locked door, and no one to disturb him, her naked body was his to do with as he wished. Only he didn't. As her corpse slowly cooled, he wouldn't grope, kiss, mutilate or rape her, as he had done with the others. And as inactive as their sex life was when she was alive, it would remain so when she was dead. Mourning the loss of his wife of 32 years, in his own perverse way, I think in my mind... I didn't want to lose her." Having wrapped her rigid and decomposing body in a blue flannel bedsheet, tied it shut with a safety pin, covered her aghast face with a pillowcase, and strangely positioned a makeshift nappy made from a woolen vest between her legs. He pried up the loose floorboards of the front room, and in a cold shallow grave, he covered her with dirt. 54 year old Ethel Christie, the faithful friend, the grieving mother, and the forgiving wife, who was timid, kind, and caring, intelligent, refined, and once beautiful, was buried one foot below her own sofa, where most nights she sat, silently by the fire, reading poetry and dreaming of happier times. With her brother Henry, her sister Lily, and the life that she could have had with her lover. Vaughan Brindley had she not made three bad decisions for good reasons. A system of rules implemented by a government to ensure that the people adhere to the will of the state, by shaping what is good or bad, defining what is right or wrong, and with any infractions judged by a randomly selected jury of their peers, in a trial which is unbiased, impartial and fair. But the law is not infallible, it is only as accurate as the evidence it is presented, so mistakes are made. On the 9th of March 1950, in Pentonville Prison, 24-year-old Timothy John Evans, a semi-literate and easily led fantasist, was executed having confessed to the murder of his wife and child. A crime he did not commit. With a real culprit in court, posing as the prosecution's chief witness, even though he had already murdered five women, including his own wife, the jury unwittingly let a guilty man walk free. It seemed clear-cut, as from the day of Beryl's murder to the morning of Tim's execution, the whole case was wrapped up in just four months. Three years later, having realised that an innocent man had been executed, the case of Timothy John Evans would send shockwaves through the establishment, rewrite law and bring an end to the death penalty. But by then, three more women, would be murdered. Some of what follows is based on the killer's own memories and perspective, so what part of this story is true is up to you. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, this is Murder Mile, and I present to you part 7 of the full, true and untold story of The Other Side of 10 Rillington Place. Today, I'm standing on Praed Street, W2, three streets west of the failed assassination attempt of former Iraqi Prime Minister, Abd al razak Saeed al-Naif, two streets north of the homes of Catherine Mulcahy and Doris June, the last victims of the infamous Blackout Ripper, and a short dawdle from Paddington Station, where Timothy Evans caught a late night train to Merthyr Vale, having hastily erased any evidence of his wife's murder and all at the real killer's command. And like most train stations, Paddington is an area synonymous with pubs and prostitution. Where pissed-up losers pump their pint-sized peckers against a disinterested sex worker's derriere. Sad gits and flashing Macs pay to have their limp love length tugged at like a bored housewife fishing a soggy noodle out of a stinky sink. And where hard up rent boys receive a mouthful of unwashed manhood from a happily married man who accidentally slipped whilst weeing against a wall. Sadly demolished. One such pub, frequented by prostitutes and punters alike, was the Great Western at 31 Prade Street. A three story, brown brick, corner facing classic British boozer, with a ceiling slathered with tobacco tar carpet sticky with spilt ale, and the air foul with the funk of fifty farts, in a stiflingly small bar comprising of six bar stools of varying wobble, four types of beer, warm, wet, thick or strong, two flavours of crisps, salty or bland, one form of greeting, surly, and a urinal floor so deep in badly aimed man that wellies were a must. And yet, it was here, sometime during the bleak winter of 1952-53, being unfettered and free, having murdered his wife, the rich Christie would meet Kathleen Maloney, an unfortunate woman who life had forgotten, but whose name would be remembered forever. On the 14th of January 1950, in
1: caught one of the old bailey. Timothy John Evans, you have been found guilty of murder. Do you have anything to say before I pass sentence? Looking
2: tiny and frightened, standing alone, Tim said nothing. His simple brain too slow to comprehend his fate, as the judge donned the infamous black cloth. But as the trembling man was led away to the cells, in a last ditch attempt to clear his name, he shouted these eponymous words, which would reverberate across the court and the country for decades to come.
1: Christy done it! I'm telling you, Christy done it! it. it.
2: Tim's cries fell on deaf ears. As across the five-day trial, the credibility and criminal record of John Reginald Halliday Christie had come into question. And having sowed the seeds of doubt over Tim's guilt... The barrister, Mr. Malcolm Morris, had boldly stated, Well, Mr. Christie, I have got to suggest to you that you are responsible for the death of Mrs. Evans and the little girl. If that is not so, that you very much know more about the death than you have said. To which Christie indignantly whispered, That is a lie. Malcolm Morris had got nearer to the truth than anyone else. Reg knew it, Ethel knew it, and Tim's mum knew it. Shortly after sentencing, Thomasina Probert accosted Reg Christie in the hallway of the Old Bailey and screamed at the top of her lungs, MURDERER! MURDERER! And in an ironic twist of fate, the one person who sprung to his defence was Ethel Christie, who shouted, DON'T YOU CALL MY HUSBAND A MURDERER? HE'S A GOOD MAN! Less than two years later, this good man would murder Ethel. Christmas 1952 was a very lonely affair for the recently widowed Reg, with no tree, no tinsel, no family and no presents. Ten Willington Place was deathly quiet, and as a bitter icy wind whipped through the cracked bricks and rattled the loose floorboards, Reg sat alone, supping a hot tea, sniffing into a hanky and sucking on a lozenge from a small tin box of Lewis and Burroughs Gee's Linctus Pastels, having caught a cold. As loneliness crept in, Reg busied himself with daily household chores, like burning rubbish in the back garden, selling off the furniture, pawning Ethel's possessions, washing the floorboards with a strong disinfectant and sprinkling floral cleaning fluid in front of his bay window to eradicate a fetid pungent aroma which he blamed on dog poo, damp and dirty water. And as Ethel's bloated body slowly rotted underneath his feet, having lied to Lily that her sister's rheumatism was too bad to write her a card so she would recuperate in London over Christmas. On that same day, over the short garden wall of 9 and 10 Rillington Place, Reg waved what Rossina Swan thought was a telegram, supposedly from Ethel, which read, Arrive safely in Sheffield. Love to Rosie. At which Reg laughed, and in a hauntingly dark jibe, he quipped, I will have to choke her off for sending love to you and not me. That Christmas day, feeling sorry for the ageing, ailing man who was too ill to work, too feeble to cook, and too poor to light a fire, in a gesture of kindness, Louisa and John Gregg and their aunt, Rosina Swan, invited this lonely man round to Number 9, Rillington Place, where they drank, sang, and made merry. But as his loneliness grew and his dark urges stirred, having already got away with five murders, and with no one to stop him. Somewhere in London, three more victims awaited Reg Christie. Kathleen Madeleine Maloney was born in the industrial port city of Plymouth on the 19th of August 1926. Originally from Ireland, her father Daniel scraped by collecting the city's scraps as a rag-and-bone man, foraging for metal to sell, cloth to sew into clothes, and bits of wood to burn, as mother Lily, older sister Lillian, stepsister Edith, and Kathleen the youngest, survived in a hand-to-mouth existence. Raised in a squalid, tumble-down dock worker's cottage at number 112 King Street, with four struggling families squeezed into just two floors, with no electricity, gas or running water, just rats, lice and a leaky roof. Although she grew up in the supposed glitz and glamour of the Roaring Twenties, Kathleen resembled a ragged urchin from a damp Victorian slum, with bare feet, matted hair, dirty skin and an empty belly. And being burdened by a plump round face, bad teeth and a crooked eye, she was mercilessly bullied. In her hard, short and troubled life, so vague are the details that many remain a mystery. So chaotic was her way of living that her last movements are unknown. And so forgotten would she become that we don't even know on what day she died. But as a ragged and starving child struggling in the dockside slums of Plymouth, for Kathleen Maloney, these would be the best days of her life. In 1931, two years after the economic collapse of the Wall Street crash, which plunged the world into financial meltdown, when Kathleen was only five years old, her father died and then her mother died. As three young siblings, Kathleen, Ethel and Lillian were briefly taken in by their aunt Emily, who lived just one door away at 110 King Street. But as a starving mother herself, who struggled to keep the unruly girl on the straight and narrow, two years later, having been separated from Edith, Lillian and Kathleen were sent to St. Natherus on Plymouth Durnford Street, a strict Catholic orphanage, where being cruelly split up from her big sister, she lost contact with Lillian too. She was a lonely, scared eight-year-old, and this would be her life for the next decade. With no family, no friends and no role models, only bellowing priests with scornful eyes, furious nuns with unholy tempers, and older girls with bad habits. Feeling utterly worthless, Kathleen rebelled, and was regularly beaten with a cane on the hands, the bottom and the back. For minor misdemeanours like smoking, swearing, theft... And fraternising with boys. But with the beatings being no deterrent to a tough little girl with no hope, having started small, her criminal career had nowhere to go but up. Age 14, with war declared and St Natharetz evacuated for fear of being bombed, Kathleen and the other girls were billeted ten miles away in Elfordley, a grand country club on 223 acres of land in the picturesque Devonshire countryside. Her stay should have given this ragged orphan a brief glimpse at a better life. But with the building having been requisitioned for the war effort, in the spring of 1944, Lee would become home not only to 80 lonely and hormonal girls from the local convent, but in preparation for the D-Day landings, a regiment, of the Royal Marines. To Kathleen it seemed like an easy solution to her persistent problem as all she had to do was kiss, cuddle and flirt with the over-amorous soldiers to be blessed with everything she ever wanted like alcohol, chocolate and attention. But soon, as the shillings were traded for sex, although it seemed like harmless fun, This first foray into the sex trade would lead Kathleen down the path to misery, poverty, and death. On the 19th of August 1944, her 18th birthday, having been arrested for fraternizing with a black American GI, Kathleen was sent to the much harsher Convent of the Good Shepherd in nearby Saltash. And although even they couldn't tame her wild ways, Just a few months later, as the Plymouth Probation Service transferred her back, by train, to St. Natherist, Kathleen absconded. With no job, no skills and no money, having hitchhiked the 200 miles to London, and with her only means of support by selling her body on the streets, Kathleen Maloney began a short, hard life as a prostitute. A dangerous profession, where in the great western pub at 31 Prade Street, she would pick up all manner of drunk, druggy, pervert, sex pest and murderer. Except, as a deeply moral, honest and teetotal man, who had never frequented pubs and never fraternised with prostitutes, there is simply no way that Kathleen and Reg could ever have met. One evening, I went up to Labrador Grove to get some fish and chips. On my way back, a drunken woman demanded a pound from me to take her round the corner. I said, I'm not interested. I'm not like that. I haven't had any intercourse with any women for over two years. She demanded 30 shillings. and said she would scream that I'd interfered with her if I didn't give it to her. I walked away. But she came right to my door, and when I opened it, she forced her way in. The last seven years of Kathleen Maloney's life are a mystery. As being a forgotten woman who had nothing, having no will, no known next of kin, and never being listed as missing. From her late teens to her early twenties, the last pieces of her life are picked from a series of shambolic statements by casual acquaintances, extracts from her criminal record, and a few fragments found in an orphanage. On the 19th of January 1945, at Bow Street's Magistrates' Court, Kathleen was found guilty of wandering abroad, her crime being homeless. She was bound over for two years and fined five pounds, which she couldn't afford. Eight weeks later, Being in breach of her probation having slept in a doorway she was sentenced to three months in Holloway prison where for once she had a bed, hot meals, clean clothes and medical care for her and her unborn baby. But having served her time she was booted out back onto the street. Fleeing to the port city of Southampton where the baby's father an unnamed Norwegian seaman was based, Kathleen gave birth to a baby boy called Danny. And trying to be a good mum, she shared a small lodging at 33 Russell Street and started work as a cleaner. But as a hopeless alcoholic, with a coarse tongue, a fierce temper and a history of violence, unable to function unless she was soused in red wine, as she drifted back into sex work, Two-year-old Danny was taken into care, and over the next seven years, her baby boy would be joined by four more. Trapped in a vicious circle of drink and sex, as her criminal record expanded, her life collapsed. April 45, a public order offence for receiving stolen goods. February 46, one month in prison for lodging in an outhouse in a condition likely to cause infection, having slept in a public toilet. November 48, one month in prison for being drunk and disorderly. April 49, three months in prison for assaulting a police officer. July 49, one month for indecency. February 50, two months for prostitution. September 50, two months for theft. February 52, one month for drunkenness and obscenity. And December 52, she spent a further 14 days in prison and was fined £2 for being drunk and disorderly. By Christmas 1952, after seven years on the streets, 14 and a half months in prison, and as a homeless, penniless alcoholic who was four months pregnant with her sixth child, with cold cramping her hands, hunger growling in her gut, and her shoes sodden as an icy wind blew down Prade Street. 25-year-old Kathleen staggered into the Great Western pub to pick up a punter. In need of just the basics to survive a single night in a bitter British winter, such as a bed, a bite to eat, and some booze. She didn't care who he was, where they went, or what he wanted. When I opened the door, she forced her way into the kitchen. She was still on about those thirty shillings. I tried to get her out, but she picked up a frying pan and hit me. There was a struggle, and she fell back onto the deck chair. I don't remember what happened, but I must have gone haywire. The next thing I remember, she was lying still, with a rope around her neck. Kathleen lived from day to day, hand to mouth and bed to bed, with no home, money or hope, just the clothes on her back, the shoes on her feet and the baby in her belly. Having sex with any man, just so she had a warm bed to sleep. As one of hundreds of prostitutes in the Paddington area, Kathleen, known as Kay or Maloney, ...picked up punters in the local pubs. The Cider House on Harrow Road, where she washed in the sinks. The Westminster Arms on Prade Street, where she had once worked as a cleaner. The Mitre in Marble Arch, where the landlord paid one of her fines. And the King's Arms on the Edgware Road, where she met a twenty-year-old girl... ...called Maureen Marianne Riggs, an orphan who'd have from a convent... ...served time in prison... Worked as a part time waitress and prostitute, and was known locally as Edgware Road Jackie. And so, finding their kindred spirit, Jackie and Kathleen became practically inseparable. On an unspecified date, sometime in October 1952, two months before Reg was allegedly accosted by a drunken Irish woman while buying fish and chips in Ladbroke Grove, Jackie and Kathleen. Met a man in the Great Western pub at 31 Prade Street. As a regular customer, the sex worker said he was polite, friendly, paid well, and apart from the occasional bout of erectile dysfunction, he was no bother. As an odd little man, who was short, scrawny, balding, and bespectacled, wearing a badly crumpled suit, thick lens spectacles, and false teeth which slipped when he smiled, he didn't look sinister. He looked silly. And as an ex special constable, commended twice. A war hero, awarded the British War and Victory Medal. And a grieving widower whose beloved wife of 32 years to be precise had recently died. Even though at that point Ethel wasn't dead. The locals knew him as John and Chris. But I prefer it if he called me wretch. as a good-natured drunk who danced badly and sang loudly, Kathleen would talk to anyone, especially if they brought her a drink. So having splashed out on a scotch for Jackie, a red wine for Kathleen and half a pint for himself, Reg made them an offer. All the while, his eyes wide, as he continuously licked his lips. Three weeks before Christmas, and one week before Ethel's death, in an unspecified top floor flat off Marleybone Lane, which had been rigged up like a photography studio, Kathleen and Jackie posed for Reg. Sometimes they were clothed, semi-clad or nude. Sometimes they were seated and spread, bent over and open. Sometimes they were alone, together or posed with Reg. His scrawny white body perched behind Jackie his penis erect, as he pretended to penetrate her from behind. Having dressed, Jackie and Kathleen asked for the 50 shillings each, roughly 75 pounds today, he had agreed to pay them. But Reg was broke. As the two girls became enraged, spinning a merry tale, he handed them 20 shillings apiece and promised a cut of the profits once the photos had been sold. But the photos were never seen, the girls were never paid, and four weeks later, Kathleen would be dead. Exactly when she was murdered, we may never know. Christie stated he last saw her in October 1952, Jackie on New Year's Eve 1953, with various sources stating that she was last alive anywhere between the 19th of January, mid to late February, and even as late as early March 1953. But having never been reported as missing, the last reliable sighting of Kathleen Maloney alive is this. On another unspecified date, which was either a week, ten days, or at least two weeks after Christmas 1952, a 35-year-old sex worker, separated mother of two, and part-time cleaner of the Red Lion pub called Catherine Struthers, who went by the alias of Kitty Foley, met Kathleen Maloney in the Westminster Arms Public House at No. 11 Parade Street, just a few doors down from the Great Western. At 5.30pm, Reg Christie, a semi-regular customer at the pub, with an easily identifiable look, manner and voice, sat by the fire, laughed with the ladies and brought them both a bottle of Slingo, a very strong Yorkshire beer. To Kitty, it was clear that Kathleen liked Reg, trusted him and pitied the recent widower who offered her a few shillings, a bed for the night and some of his dead wife's clothes. And although Reg sniffed, being burdened by a winter cold, Kitty had no reason to be suspicious. He seemed like just a sweet old man who listened politely, talked quietly and kindly offered them both a menthol sweet from a small box of Lewis and Burroughs G. Linktas pastels, which he kept in his pocket. At roughly 9 or 10 p.m., with Kathleen having knocked back eight pints of Slingo, being unsteady on her feet, cheerfully singing and feeling a tad peckish, Kathleen and Reg left the Westminster Arms and hopped on the number 27 bus to Notting Hill. That was the last confirmed sighting of Kathleen Maloney. So exactly what happened next is a mystery. None of the neighbours saw Reg or Kathleen walk into Rillington Place. None of the tenants heard any shouting coming from the ground floor flat. And with the police, Choosing to ignore Tim's claim that Christie done it, I'm telling you, Christie done it. Believing the right man had been executed, there was no surveillance or further investigation into the life of John Reginald Halliday Christie. Why she went with Reg, we shall never know. Maybe being hungry, the lure of a free meal of potato, peas, and carrots was too great. Maybe being cold, a set of second-hand clothes was too tempting. Maybe being four months pregnant, he enticed her in with a promise of a cheap but not entirely risk-free abortion. Or maybe, being homeless, what she wanted was just a warm bed on a cold night. Having stated that she had assaulted him, Christy would later claim, She wanted me to be intimate with her and started taking things off. I tried to stop her. She was very repulsive, and I wanted her out of my house. I don't remember what happened. Everything sort of went haywire. But I remember thinking, alright, if ever a woman deserved to die, you do. Being only small, but heavily intoxicated to the point where she could barely stand. Although she was trusting, defenceless, and had a blood alcohol level of 0.24, three times over the drink drive limit. Fearing she would fight back, Reg incapacitated her even further. With a semi-conscious, malnourished girl slumped in the deck chair, having switched off the kitchen stove, opened the side window a crack, and removed the square glass jar, with a long rubber hose trailing under her seat, he unplugged the bulldog clip and let the gas drift up. And as the invisible odourless gas rendered her unconscious, as the carbon monoxide in her lungs reached a lethal level, only then did Reg pull a pillowcase over her face and with both hands gripped taut, he strangled her with a black stocking. After that, I believe I made a cup of tea and went to bed. In his many statements, Christie would deny that any sex took place between himself and the drunken woman that he found so repulsive. And although sperm was found in her vagina, it's impossible to confirm if the intercourse occurred when she was alive or dead. I got up in the morning I went into the kitchen. I washed, shaved, and she was still in the deck chair. A pillowcase on her head and a stocking round her neck. I believe I then made some tea. Having wrapped her body in a flannelette blanket, tied her ankles with a sock, and stripped her body bare of everything except for a white cotton cardigan. As he had done with Ethel, he stuffed a white cotton vest between her legs like a makeshift nappy but no one knows why. And then, I pulled away a small cupboard and gained access to the kitchen alcove. I knew it was there because a pipe burst in the frosty weather. I must have put her in there. I don't remember doing it. And there she remained, raped and strangled, curled up in the fetal position, in a dirty unused alcove in Ridge Christie's kitchen with no missing persons report and no investigation into her disappearance, 24-year-old Kathleen Madeleine Maloney, the cruelly orphaned girl, was as forgotten in life as she was in death. Although it's unclear when she was murdered, one thing we know for certain. When the police opened the alcove, they found three bodies, not one. And with Kathleen being in the middle, by the time of her death, Christie had already killed another woman, and there was one more still to come. Once again, John Reginald Halliday Christie had got away with murder, and with two bodies in the back garden, two in a grave, one under the floor, two in the alcove, and one executed for his crimes, he believed he had fooled everyone. But something from his past would come back to haunt him. help. A single word which is simple to spell, easy to say, difficult to ask for, and impossible to accept when pride is at stake. We all need help when life gets tough, but the harder life becomes, the less we are willing to accept it for fear of admitting defeat. And yet without help, we cannot succeed. We're surrounded by people who can help all of whom are ready and willing to sacrifice something to save us. But being victims of our own circumstance, help is often the first word we think of when things get bad, and the very last word we will ever utter. By the bleak winter of 1952, barely weeks after the cruel murder of Ethel Christie, and shortly before the senseless death of Kathleen Maloney, being ailing and ill, lonely and desperate, With his dark urges festering and being too broke to secure the services of sex workers, Reg Christie stalked the cafes of West London, preying on vulnerable women in search of his next victim. Some of what follows is based on the killer's own memories and perspectives, so what part of this story is true is up to you. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, this is Murder Mile, and I present to you part eight of the full, true, and untold story of the other side of 10 Rillington Place. Today, I'm standing on the Seven Stars roundabout on Goldhawk Road, W12, one and a half miles southwest of Rillington Place, three miles west of the Great Western Pub in Paddington and several tube stops away from any location we've visited before. But a place very familiar to Reg Christie. As a T-junction, interconnecting Paddenwick Road and Goldhawk Road, the Seven Stars roundabout is as dull as it sounds, with the only sound in this bland grey landscape being the steamy splattering of puke, piddle and dog plops, as every car, truck and bus whizzes around this inch-high tarmacked traffic island past a handful of pointless shops, most of which are shut, and several road signs there to remind you that the only reason you've come here was to go somewhere else. In 1952, on the ground floor of 240 Goldhawk Road sat Peter's Snack Bar, a classic British greasy spoon Serving such delightful culinary delicacies as bacon butties, sausage sarnies, heart-hardening fry-ups, deep-fried diabetes, a stroke in a bun, or any form of foodstuff as long as it could be cooked in a single pan of hot salty fat, was made from pig's parts too shoddy for dog food, could be cunningly disguised by a kilo of ketchup, and mashed up so heavily you couldn't tell an eyeball. From an asshole, and yet, it was here, whilst working just a few doors away, the Reg Christie would pop in for a quick cup of tea, a spot of lunch, and a chance to lure another vulnerable woman to her death. On the sixth of December, nineteen forty-nine, at two ten p.m. Four days after the arrest of Timothy John Evans, Police Constable Mount of Harrow Road Police Station was assigned to a routine task at Ladbroke Grove. PC 338, proceed to 133 St Mark's Road, suspicious object found. Over. do that. Situated a few doors down from Rillington Place, 133 St Mark's Road was now a derelict shell. With its walls charred black, Windows smashed and doors stolen, having been bombed during the Blitz a decade earlier. Alerted by two children, between two floorboards, PC Mount unearthed what looked like a milky white ball. Only its shape was uneven and broken, its sound was brittle and hollow, its texture was smooth and hard, and its colour was like an old stick stripped of bark. Hara Road, this is PC338. Object found at 133 St Marks Road is an adult human skull. Jaw missing, no other body parts found. Over. Thank you PC338, over. And that was that. The police had discovered the decapitated skull of a female in her early 30s. And they did nothing. There was no press coverage, no autopsy and no investigation. But then again, why would they? With thousands of people listed as missing after the Blitz, and millions of bones and body parts still littering the city, being just another skull, it was bagged up, catalogued and stored in the Kensington Mortuary. And although they didn't know it, this skull was special as having been buried in a nearby garden seven years earlier. Dug up by a mongrel dog. Disposed of by the flat's tenant. She believed I could cure her, Who hid it from his wife. Tease up, Reg. And with the victim's family, believing she had died in a bombed-out air raid shelter in Putney. This long-forgotten skull would help put an end to the life of London's most infamous serial killer. But before that, three more women would die. Rita Elizabeth Nelson was born on the 16th of October 1927 in Belfast City Hospital and raised by Protestant parents, James, a labourer, and Lily, a housewife, whose life revolved around the teachings of the Presbyterian Church. As a middle child of three daughters, With May, the eldest, and Sadie, the youngest, Rita's life was led by the Bible in the hope of making a good woman out of an unruly girl. But burdened by a high sense of pride and a rebellious streak, Rita's stubbornness created a friction in the family who abhorred theft, alcohol, and sex out of wedlock. Rita was an enigma, a deliberate mystery, who hid her true self behind a facade. Why? We may never know. What we do know is that she was 5 foot 5 inches tall, of slim build, with a thick mop of wiry brown hair, like she'd been caught in a breeze. Small brown eyes, like little acorns lost in a blanket of fresh snow. An eternally furrowed brow, like life was digging a grave into her brain. And missing four teeth, a wide mouth which grimaced, grinded and grinned but rarely smiled. With her lips and nails slathered in a thick coat of fiery red, she resembled a ray of joy but the colour only disguised her sadness. With a posh affectation, she sounded like a real lady from a well-to-do family but her accent only hid her roots as a poor girl from Belfast and being fashionably dressed in greens, pinks and blacks. She was always neat and tidy, but only had two sets of clothes. Rita's life would descend into disarray, and yet she always hid, ran and never asked for help. January 1940. Rita Nelson was charged with theft. She was 13 years old. December 42 again charged with theft. May 46, she was given a six-month probation for theft. September 46, age 19, she was fined 20 shillings for engaging in prostitution. November 46, one year's probation and a five-pound fine for assaulting a police officer. January 47, one month in Belfast prison for breaking her probation. And April 48, She was fined 40 shillings for being drunk and disorderly. Seven arrests in eight years, all before she was 21. And although on paper she appears to be a career criminal, she may not have been an angel, but she wasn't bad, cruel or evil. She was just lost. During her teens, she was strangled so badly her attacker fractured her hyoid bone in her throat. Her assailant was never arrested, and the bone never healed. In 1950, as an unmarried sex worker and convicted thief, Rita's two-year-old son, George, was taken into care. And then, in 1952, after 29 years of marriage, her parents divorced, and Rita ran away to London. Three months later, she would be dead. In March 1953, 28-year-old mother of one, Mary Ballinghall, made this statement. A man I know to be John Christie helped me onto the train at Hammersmith. We'd both been to the National Assistance Board as I was living on £1.2 a week, which isn't enough. He spoke to me about his dead wife and seemed very lonely. In the Seven Stars Cafe, opposite Peter's snack bar on the Goldhawk Road, he brought me a tea, toast, cigarettes, offered me some second-hand clothes and a pound to help me along. A couple of evenings later, I went to his home to collect the money. I sat in his deck chair. He showed me some pictures of his wife and he cried. Suddenly he tried to kiss me. I resisted and threatened to scream. He then apologised, gave me a pound, and I left. On the 5th of October 1952, two weeks before her 25th birthday, Rita caught the overnight ferry from Belfast to Haysham in Lancashire, accompanied by her 35-year-old cousin, James Boyd, and headed to London. As a deeply private person, Rita kept herself to herself, but when asked why she had left Belfast, she said she was either looking for work or had ran away from home. And yet, her work history would be patchy, and every week, without fail, she would post a letter to her mother. By lunchtime that very same day, Rita and James had called in at the home of her older sister, who lived at number 80 Ladbroke Grove just two roads south of 10 Rillington Place. And although she had reason to visit this area, her trips were infrequent and she rarely stayed. At 5pm, Rita and James left Ladbroke Grove and headed east to Soho, looking for work. The next day, James found work on a construction site in Stratford, East London. But as a young girl with a lengthy criminal record, for Rita times were tough. By all accounts, Rita had turned over a new leaf, and with no further arrests, and not one witness statement suggesting that she had slipped back into her old ways of drinking, stealing and prostitution, Rita would remain sober, honest and celibate, and for good reason. Struggling to hold down a series of part-time jobs, Rita's work record was chaotic. December 1952, she was an orderly at Great Ormond Street Hospital. It paid badly and gave her a place to sleep, but often feeling sick and tired, she lasted just three weeks. On the 10th of December 1952, she worked as a kitchen maid at the Devonshire Arms Public House in Notting Hill Gate, where she also lived. But with her back and feet aching, she was deemed unsuitable and lasted just three days, losing her job and her lodging. In need of a bed, a fire, and being too proud to stay with her sister May, who lived just half a mile away, on the 14th of December 1952, Rita moved into a rented flat at number two Shepherd's Gardens, where her 68 year old widowed landlady, Hannah Reese, said she was polite, quiet, and kept to herself. With no friends, no close family links, and no social life, Rita's last few weeks are a mystery. With no set routine, her movements are hard to pin down, and having never visited a doctor for a health check or signed on at the National Assistance Board to claim any unemployment benefits, It's clear that no matter how hard times got, Rita was going to do this alone. But was this through pride or shame? Three weeks before Christmas, 1952, Rita visited her sister in Ladbroke Grove and would later send her a festive Christmas card. And on the 18th of January, 1953, two days after she had posted it, Her mother, Lily, received the last letter that Rita would ever send. In it, she reassured her mother that she was healthy, happy and well. She told her that she was six months pregnant and that she would be returning to Belfast on the 28th of February to have the baby. Her family never saw or heard from her again. In March 1953, 42-year-old housewife Margaret Forrest of St Luke's Mews made this statement. Three weeks ago, I was in the Panda Cafe at 232 Westbourne Park Road. I was sitting at one of the tables, holding my forehead, when a man asked, Excuse me, do you suffer from migraines? I said I did, and he said he could cure it. He arranged for me to go to his house the following Saturday at 2pm, and then he left. I thought the matter over, and I didn't keep the appointment. The following Tuesday, I was in the cafe, the man came in. He was in a foul temper, and he asked me why I hadn't kept the appointment. I made my excuses. He suggested that I should see him that afternoon. I didn't answer. He said that I didn't appear interested, and said, Well, if you would rather suffer, I can't help you. I haven't seen him since. Rita's last known employment was as a counterhand at the Shepherd's Bush Tea Room at 54 Oxbridge Road in Shepherd's Bush. She started on the 6th of January 1953 for a wage of just £3.11 and shillings a week. But by Thursday the 8th, feeling sick, weak and sweating profusely, although she denied that she was unwell, Rita was moved off the shop floor and into the kitchen. She could have been sacked for dishonesty, having tried to hide her pregnancy from her employer. But with the tea room being a branch of Jay Lyons & Sons, a family business run by good people who own such well-regarded establishments as Maison Lyonnais in Marble Arch and the corner house tea room on Oxford Street, they took pity on her and wanted to help her. On Monday the 12th of January 1953, Rita was sent to Dorothy Ann Simers, medical officer for J. Lyons and Sons at 33 Orchard Street in Marleybone W1. Right there, Dorothy wrote the following letter addressed to Evelyn Richards, the Lady Almoner of the Samaritans Hospital for Women. It read, Dear Lady Almoner, Miss Rita Nelson has come to see me today and I find that she is 24 weeks pregnant. She has recently come from Belfast. She has no relations or friends in London and doesn't want to return home in her condition, of which she insists she was unaware until today. I wonder if you could help her to be admitted to a home for unmarried mothers, to see her through the late stages of her pregnancy. Yours sincerely, Dorothy Simers, J. Lyons & Company. That day... Rita signed for her final wages. An appointment was made to visit the St. Maritans Hospital for Women the very next day, and she was handed the letter, which ensured the safety and health of her and her baby. On Friday, the sixteenth of January, nineteen fifty-three, her landlady Hannah Reese witnessed Rita leaving her flat at number two Shepherd's Gardens to post a letter to her mother Lily, in which she stated that she would return home. In six weeks. That was the last confirmed sighting of Rita Elizabeth Nelson. But then again, there was this. In March 1953, Margaret Ellen Sergison, owner of Peter's Snack Bar at 240 Goldhawk Road, made this statement. Ridge was a regular customer. He'd come three or four times a week often with different girls. He was very fond of saying that he was struck off as a doctor for helping a girl out. He'd say this even if they didn't ask. This one girl he met mostly in the day and only once in the evening. He said that she was company for his wife who was an invalid. One day, she stopped coming. He told me that if the girl ever came back to let her have whatever she wanted, and he would settle the bill. I never saw her again. Eric Henry Webster, a lorry driver and a colleague of Reggie's at British Road Services a few doors down from Peter's snack bar, stated,
1: She was about 18, 5 foot 3 inches tall, with brown hair. She was quite well spoken. She gave the impression of coming from a good family. She was known to us as Rita.
2: On Saturday, the 17th of January 1953, with the rent overdue, no reply to her knocks, and growing concerned, her landlady, Hannah Reese, reported Rita as missing at the Hammersmith police station. Having been missing for a full four days, the police gave Hannah permission to break into Rita's flat. It was exactly as she'd left it her bed was unmade, her clothes were on the floor. Her nail polish bottle was empty and on the bedside table lay the unopened letter addressed to the Lady Almoner of the Samaritan's Hospital for Women, eight days after it had been written. There were very few certainties with this case. When she died, we will never know. It was sometime after Friday the 16th of January 1953, when she was last seen alive, but sometime before the death of Kathleen Maloney, whose exact date of death is unknown. How they met, we will never know. As with Rita being an intensely private person, with no routine or close connections, all we have are the statements Reg would give. And why she trusted him, we will never know. And yet it seems strange that for whatever reason she shunned the help of her sister who lived locally, hid the truth from her mother back home in Belfast and dismissed the much needed medical care offered by the Samaritans Hospital. But according to those who saw them together she knew, liked and trusted Reg Christie. But why? Sometime in February... I went to a cafe at Notting Hill Gate for a cup of tea and a sandwich. The cafe was pretty full. There wasn't much space. Two girls were at a table. One of them asked me for a cigarette. I mentioned I was leaving my flat and that it would be vacant very soon and they suggested coming down to see it together in the evening. Only one of them came down. She looked over the flat and said it was suitable. It was then that she made suggestions that she would stay for a few days as a sort of payment in kind. I was rather annoyed and told her that that sort of thing didn't interest me. I think she started saying I was making accusations against her when she saw that nothing was doing. She said that she would bring some boys down to do me in. I believe it was then that she mentioned something about her having Irish blood. She had a very violent temper. I remember she started fighting. I'm very quiet and avoid fighting. I know there was something else, though. It's in the back of my mind. I must have put her in the alcove right away. At least, that's how Reg remembers it happening. Except the date was wrong, the location was wrong, and the other girl he mentioned was never identified and probably never existed. Evidence suggests the Rita willingly entered Tenrillington Place, although she was never seen. She happily sat in his deck chair and chatted to Reg, although no sounds to the contrary were ever heard. And with no cuts, bruises, or alcohol in her system, only a few carrots and a fragment of meat from the last meal she would ever eat just one day before. As the odorless, colorless gas drifted up from under her seat, Rita drifted in and out of consciousness. She wasn't dead when he strangled her. She may not have been alive when he raped her. With her body wrapped in a blanket, tied around her ankles with a plastic flex and curled in the fetal position, Rita was hidden in a dark and dirty kitchen alcove. As with the other women, Rita was semi-clad. All that was missing was her knickers. Between her legs, he would placed two cotton vests like a makeshift nappy. And just like Ethel, to disguise her discoloured skin, protruding tongue and ruptured eyes, which distended out of their sockets, a knotted white towel had been tied around her head. And there she lay, rotting in a cold coal cellar, nibbled at by rats and gnawed at by maggots. As in her womb, the six month old fetus of a baby boy slowly suffocated. Rita Elizabeth Nelson had a tough start in life, and although a solitary figure, her stubbornness had helped her survive poverty separation, assault and prostitution and even being burdened by a lengthy criminal record. She had fled her own country to seek an honest job, a quiet home and a better life for her and her unborn baby, hoping to become a good mum with a chance at a bright future. But being too proud to accept help from those she loved, she found only death. At the hands of a man, she believed she trusted. And yet, after Rita Nelson and Kathleen Maloney, somewhere in West London, one more vulnerable woman would be lured back to 10 Rillington Place. Fate, a series of uncontrollable events which lead our lives in a very different direction to the one we had planned, and whether it is guided by God's will, supernatural power or simply chance, fate drives us towards a new destiny, a future that feels unwritten but is the way our life is meant to be. Life is full of unexpected twists and turns. And no matter how hard we strive to succeed with even the simplest of tasks, nothing is ever easy, as fate throws us a dirty curve, forcing us into impossible situations and testing our health, wealth, skills and sanity. Fate may seem unfair. It makes the useless famous, the ignorant important and the rude respected. And then sometimes... It forces two strangers together for the sole reason that one is destined to become a serial killer and the other to become their prey. By the beginning of 1953, a decade after his killing spree began, Rich Christie had nothing. He was penniless, starving and ill. Trapped in a lonely flat surrounded by his souvenirs, memories and eight bodies, with two in his garden, two in the alcove, one under the floor, two in a cemetery, a decapitated head in a mortuary, and an innocent man executed by the state for the murders that Reg Christie had committed. And yet, with his sadistic urges growing, he prowled the cafes of West London, looking for his final victim. But they would never have met had fate not forced them together. Some of what follows is based on the Keller's own memories and perspective, so what part of this story is true is up to you. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, this is Murder Mile, and I present to you Part 9 of the full, true and untold story of The Other Side of 10 Rillington Place. Today, I'm standing outside of what is locally known as the Hammersmith Apollo at 45 Queen Caroline Street in Hammersmith, W6. A ten-minute stroll from Peter's Snack Bar the 240 Goldhawk Road and three tube stops south of 10 Rillington Place. Although its current incarnation is as the Aventim Apollo, a name which no one calls it, the Hammersmith Apollo was built in 1932 as the Goldmont Palace. A three and a half thousand seat cinema and theatre. Three stories high, 200 feet wide, with curved Art Deco columns and its original Compton Pipe Organ. Ooh. As one of London's premier music venues, which has hosted a wealth of musical legends, outside every night... You'll spy long lines of fans, whether a gloom of goths, all trying to look individual but identically dressed. A rabble of rockers, who assume that rock and roll means to smell like cheap cider and cheesy Watsets. A sleaze of fat old men, all squeezed into ziggy stardust like for a drone of ten-year-olds all wearing Ramones T-shirts with no idea that they were a band and not a clothing brand. And a flush of middle-aged women, all drooling over their boy band crushes, who recently reformed, to cover the cost of their hip replacements, false teeth, wigs, corsets, butt tucks, moob reductions and colostomy bands. And yet... It was here, outside of the Gormont Palace, that 27-year-old Hectorina McClellan would meet Reg Christie, two unlikely strangers who fate had forced together. Great plumes of steam formed as his warm breath hit the cold winter air and as the constant stream of condensation ran down the dirty bedroom window and dripped onto the cold wooden floor, his one comfort was Judy, his mongrel dog, who shivered beside him, all cold, lean and hungry. The room was empty, the walls were bare, the bed and mattress were gone. Having abruptly resigned from a well-paying job, at British road services a few days before he had murdered his wife, and struggling to survive on benefits of £2.14 a week, he had pawned Ethel's possessions, sold most of his furniture to Robert J. Hookway for £12, and now, being a stone lighter and three shades paler, 54-year-old Ridge Christie slept on a thick pile of old clothes. For the umpteenth time that night, Reg winced in pain as the lumps and bumps of his makeshift bed played merry hell with his fibrositis and his totting and turning contorted his dicky tummy into knots. Huffing with discomfort, Reg slunk into the kitchen and warmed his frozen fingers by the tiny flickering fire, having used the last few clumps of the coal in his scuttle. As with a series of ahs, oohs and ouches, Reg slowly lowered himself into the deck chair, his striped pyjamas torn and his slippers tatty. Being weak, hungry, ill and six months away from death, Reg should have been focused on food, sleep and medicine. But as he sat beside the kitchen alcove, with his sinuses rattled by a winter cold, still his stuffy nostrils stung with the acrid stench of strong disinfectant, as the corpses of Rita Nelson and Kathleen Maloney rotted barely a few feet away. And although, in his trembling hands, he held a small metal tin of Lewis and Burroughs G's Linctus pastels, having eaten every lozenge, slowly he felt better as he leered inside the box and grinned. By most accounts, Hectorina McKay McClellan was a good woman. Being born on the 18th of February 1926, just before the Great Depression, between the austerity of two world wars, and raised in Grove Park Street, a tough part of Glasgow, life was hard. But blessed with two supportive parents, William and Marion, three protective brothers, Robert, Donald, and John, and two loving sisters, Benjamina and Annie. No matter what life threw at her, Hectorina would thrive and survive. Known as Ina, Hectorina dreamed of marriage and babies, eager to mirror her own parents by being a good mum, with a proud dad, a stable home, and a family who stuck together through thick and thin. With a soft Glaswegian lilt, A youthful face, and being 5 foot 4 inches tall, although her cigarette-stained fingers often shook with bouts of anxiety and depression, and her slightly crossed eyes gave the impression that she was simple, Ina was a sharp cookie, who being sturdily built, was no pushover. So, as a woman from a strong family, living 340 miles away in Scotland, who was naturally cautious, morally decent, and was never too proud to ask for help. Although she had a limited education, no skills, and would live a life reliant on a husband, with no criminal record, drink or drug issues, and no history of sex work, there was no reason, at all, why Ina and Reg should ever have met. But they did. In 1941, age 15, Ina was living with a handsome Burmese serviceman called Kin Wang Hua, who was posted at RAF Middle Wallop in Portsmouth as part of No. 10 RAF Group, defending the south coast of England from the onslaught of Nazi bombers during World War II. As a military wife, although life on the base was routine and drab, with an endless procession of meals to make, Uniforms to starch, boots to polish, and a baby daughter called Marion to raise. Unlike in the big city, here she was well protected, well fed, debt-free and happy. Ina had everything she ever wanted. A home, a husband, a baby and love. In 1948, Ina's parents, William and Marion, and her siblings... Robert, Donald, Benjamina and Annie, all except John who had joined the navy, moved from Glasgow to 153 Warwick Road in Earls Court, West London. With her husband, Kin, being posted to Cardiff in Wales, to give her eight-year-old daughter more stability, Ina moved in with her parents, two and a half miles south of Rillington Place. Being five months pregnant with her second child, Ina and Kin were married. And on the 24th of January 1951, Juliana was born. It should have been the happiest year of Ina's life. But with her husband's career blooming, their relationship strained, and their new baby being white and western, not mixed-race like Marion, at the end of 1951, Kin had returned to Burma, and Ina didn't join him. She could have, but she didn't. Ina was a single mother, with two young children and an estranged husband overseas who no longer supported them, so she lived on handouts from the National Assistance Board. And although she stayed under her parents' roof, Surrounded by siblings, and worked for 18 months as a nanny to Alex and Florence Baker's four-year-old child, a wage of just £1 per day simply wasn't enough to survive. In October 1951, eager to make a better life for Juliana and Marion, her parents moved out of the smog, grim and decay of the big city, and headed to Ochnersheen in the highlands of Scotland a tranquil village amidst the rolling hills, bubbling streams and the crisp fresh air. But Ina didn't join them. She could have, but she didn't. And with her husband gone, her children gone and her family gone, lacking any purpose, she sunk into a deep depression. And fate pushed her into the path of Reg Christie. I met a couple coming out of a cafe in Hammersmith, if I remember rightly. They said they'd been thrown out of their digs and stayed for a few days. A few days later, the girl came back alone. I advised her not to. She was very funny about it. I got hold of her arm and tried to push her out. She started struggling, and some of her clothes got torn. She sort of fell limp as I got hold of her. She sank to the ground, and I think some of her clothes got caught around her neck in the struggle. I then pulled her onto the deck chair. I felt her pulse, but it wasn't beating. The Last Nine Weeks of Ina's Life are a bit of a mystery, but this is what we know. Without warning, on the 1st of January 1953, Ina vanished from 153 Warwick Road. Reported missing at Kensington Police Station, she was tracked down and returned home. But by the 2nd of February, she had disappeared. That was the last time her siblings saw her, and they stated that she had no reason to leave. Being depressed, single, and gripped by loneliness, Ina had eloped with 41-year-old unemployed truck driver, ex-convict, and married father of one called Alexander Pomeroy Baker, whose four-year-old child Ina used to babysit for one pound a day. Although happily married to his wife of 16 years, with five kids and a house in nearby Pembroke Close. Over that Christmas, Dorothy uncovered the affair, she booted her husband out, and Alex and Ina moved into a furnished flat at number 4 Oldham Road, not far from Ladbroke Grove. Ina was desperate for a return to the happy family life she had lost, but with spats frequent and money tight, Their love nest was short-lived, and two weeks later, Alex moved back in with his wife and kids. Over the next few weeks, Ina slept rough, whether by crashing on friends' floors, dossing in doorways, or huddling in the passageway of her former boyfriend's home. At the end of January, Ina was spotted in Holland Park by 40-year-old Frank Ernest Collier, also known as Ron an old friend and a criminal with five convictions for burglary, who Ina had confessed to Reverend Arthur Shaw that he was the real father of her daughter, Julianne. Shocked at how awful Ina looked, with matted hair, broken nails and a dirty face, both being broke with nowhere to stay, they slept rough, lived off the proceeds of his crimes, and it is implied that Ina turned to prostitution. Valentine's Day, 1953. In the all-night milk bar in Notting Hill Gate, Ron and Ina were supping cups of tea when Ina's face flushed red. As across the counter, a small, bald and bespectacled man stared at her. Visibly shaken, Ina said, I think he knows we're talking about him. He's a chap I had some trouble with. He gave me an unpleasant time. And yet, with Ron beside her, the man never spoke to her or approached her. One month later, Ron would identify the man in the old night milk bar as Reg Christie. On the 18th of February, 1953, having demanded cash in exchange for the safe return of property that he had burgled from a house in Acton, Ron was arrested in Hyde Park and Ina fled. Being sought by the police and with Ron in Brixton prison, feeling unsafe as a single woman, Ina went back to Pembroke Place and once again, Alex deserted his wife and five kids and ran away with Ina. From Sunday the 22nd of February 1953, across the next 10 days, Ina and Alex stayed at the home of Ivor Elliot, a friend of Alex's, at 35 Headley Road, a road between Shepherds Bush and Goldhawk Road. Having outstayed their welcome, on Monday the 2nd of March, Ina revisited Reverend Arthur Shaw at the Hind Street Methodist Church, W1, and asked for help. But he turned her away and although she still had Alex to protect her. Once again, Ina was homeless, penniless, depressed, and pregnant. Not very long after that, I met a couple coming out of a cafe in Hammersmith, if I remember rightly. The man went across the road to talk to a friend. And while he was away, she said that they had to give up their digs at the weekend. I told her that if they hadn't found anywhere, I could put them up. They both came and stayed for a few days. When they left, the man asked me if they couldn't find anywhere, could they come back for the night. I agreed to help them out. The girl came back alone. At least, that was Reg's version. But of course, the truth was different. On Friday, the 24th of January 1953, outside of the Gourmand Palace, having spied the couple through a steamy window of an unnamed cafe, Eve's dropped on their chat and waited until the female was alone. Reg approached Dina and made her an offer. By the time Alex had returned, Reg was gone. As agreed, on Tuesday the third of March nineteen fifty three, at seven thirty PM, Reg waited for Ina outside of Labra Grobe tube station. His hopes were high, having lured her here with a promise of a place to stay. But upon seeing that she was accompanied by Alex, his face turned to thunder as Reg bemoaned. I told you not to tell anyone about the flat, not even your husband. I don't want lots of people making inquiries. Alex had scuppered Reggie's plan to get Ina alone. And being taller, younger and fitter, he knew the burly man could easily overpower him. But being so close to his prize and feeling intellectually superior to the 40-year-old truck driver... Reg knew he needed to drive them apart, so he could have Ina to himself. Having mellowed, Reg gave the homeless couple a brief tour of Tenrillington Place. It wasn't ideal. The flat smelled bad, the tenant was a stranger, almost all of the doors were locked, it only had one bed made out of an old pile of women's clothes and the 12 shillings and 9 pence a week rent was too pricey. But being a good Samaritan, Reg offered them a place to stay for a few nights. Alex was unsure. He didn't like Reg, he didn't trust Reg, and the feeling was mutual. So having thanked him for the offer, Alex and Ina left Rillington Place and headed back to Ivor Elliot's in Hetley Road. With the rain heavy, the streets dark, and the icy wind cold, they arrived back hoping to dry off by the fire, nab a bite to eat, and nod off together on the sofa. But with Ivor not wanting to be rudely awakened at the midnight hour again, with the door bolted shut, the couple were locked out. They had two choices. Sleep rough on the cold street, or head back to the warmth of Rillington Place. Arriving at roughly 2am, although he wasn't expecting them, being dressed in his torn striped pyjamas and tatty slippers, a sleepy reg welcomed them in, and by all accounts, he was pleasant and hospitable. having no spare beds or sofa, with Ina in the deck chair, Alex on the stool, and Reg perched on the coal scuttle, slowly drying by the warmth of the fire, that night they sat, chatted, and drank tea. And there they stayed for three nights, as guests of Reg Christie, and yet only one of them was truly welcome. On Friday the 6th of March 1953, at 9.30am, with his rations run out, money short and needing to sign on, Reg, Ina and Alex left Rillington Place and went to the National Assistance Board by Goldhawk Road. For whatever reason, Ina agreed to meet Reg back at his flat at 12pm. She didn't say why. She agreed to meet Alex in an unnamed cafe on the Uxbridge Road at 3pm. But she never showed up. And later that evening, having returned to Rillington Place, Reg reassured Alex that Ina wasn't there. He showed him the rooms, offered him a cup of tea as he sat in the deck chair barely a few feet from the alcove. And feigning concern, Reg spent the next few hours with Alex conducting a fruitless search of shepherd's bush in the hopes of finding Ina who Reg already knew was dead she sort of fell limp as I had hold of her she sank to the ground and I think some of her clothing must have got caught around her neck in the struggle I must have strangled her and had sex with her but I can't recall then I must have put her in the alcove. At least, that was Reg's version. But the truth was very much different. After almost a decade of trial and error, Reg had perfected his murder technique to a fine art. With Ina reclined in the deck chair, although the fire was off, the window was open and the kitchen was bitterly cold, She didn't feel uneasy or unnerved as she sat and calmly chatted to Reg, as underneath her seat a long rubber hose lay, as in his hand Reg excitedly fingered a length of rope. Alex was gone, Ina was alone, and soon she would be his. Being barely lunchtime, it didn't matter that she refused his offer of an alcoholic drink to make her more pliable. Being relatively healthy, it didn't matter that he had no reason to use the square glass jar of Friar's Balsam. And with the truth of her pregnancy being uncertain, there was no evidence whether an attempted abortion took place. But then again, there wasn't with Bevel as he had done with several other women, Reg slowly reached behind the kitchen curtain to unhook the bulldog clip on the long rubber hose and unleash a lethal level of invisible and odourless gas. Only this time, Ina saw him. She panicked and she screamed. Desperate to silence her, Reg dived on top of the flailing woman and pinned her down deep into the deck chair as she punched, kicked and spat with every ounce of her strength. And being a sturdily built woman who was no pushover, Ina was more than a match for this feeble 54-year-old weakling who weighed barely ten stone and had to hold his breath for fear of being rendered unconscious by the gas underneath. And the more he struggled, the more she fought back. But unlike Ina, Reg had been here before, with Beryl. And having punched Ina hard in the face, as he grabbed his strangling rope and pulled both ends tight, after a minute of fitting and flailing, as her pale skin ruptured red, her nostrils frothed with a bloody spit, and her crossed hazel eyes bulged out of their sockets, as her last ever breath slowly left her lungs... Within a minute, Ina was dead. He stripped her, raped her, tied her ankles and her hands, and dragged her semi-clad corpse into the dark, cramped alcove. Dressed in only a blue bra and pink suspenders, and with no space to lie down, sitting her upright, on her knees and with her back to the wooden door, he tied her bra around a ceiling hook, so strangely, it looked as if she was praying. And just like the two other bodies in front of her, her knickers were missing, and so was her pubic hair. To the best of our knowledge, John Reginald Halliday Christie had murdered eight different women over one decade. And all at Rillington place by Thursday the 19th of March 1953 with a trunk full of dead women's clothes two bodies buried in the back garden one rotting under the floorboards three festering in an alcove an unholy smell emanating from the drains a thigh bone holding up the garden fence a decapitated skull in Kensington mortuary ...and several personal items belonging to his victims... ...having been casually tossed out with the rubbish... ...along with a small metal tin of Lewis and Burroughs G's linked as pastels. Although Reg could have... ...he didn't dispose of the bodies... ...or destroy any evidence. Instead, having nailed the alcove door shut crudely wallpapered over the cracks and sold anything of any value at the local pawn shops. Being two months behind with his rent and practically penniless, dressed in a fawn raincoat and a brown trilby hat, he rented out his flat, packed up his brown suitcase and with Judy on her lead, Reg Christie disappeared into the night never to return to 10 Rillington Place. Shame, an emotionally driven outcome of our own sense of failure, as having been unable to conform to a physical, mental or moral standard, mostly of our own making, we re-evaluate ourselves in a very negative way and are left feeling guilty, distressed, powerless and worthless. Shame can be a powerful motivator, it can guide us to greatness, wealth, power and success, as the raw emotion we originally felt returns, causing our hearts to pump, muscles to tense, and nerves to tingle even decades later. But the outcome entirely depends on the person, as even what seems like a meaningless moment of shame can trigger a personal crisis which can shape us for the worst. On Friday the 20th of March 1953, Rich Christie, left his ground-floor flat at 10 Rillington Place, never to return. During a decade-long reign of terror, seven women, one man and a baby had died. But their killer had never been caught, and with most of the victims having gone unreported, nobody knew that one of Britain's most prolific serial killers lived in Ladbroke Grove. And now, he had disappeared. Some of what follows is based on the killer's own memories and perspective, so what part of this story is true is up to you. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, this is Murder Mile, and I present to you part 10 of the full, true and untold story of the other side of 10 Rillington Place. Today. I'm standing on the T-junction of King's Cross Road and Calthorpe Street, WC1. One mile south of the Regent's Canal, where the body of Sebastiano Magnanini was dumped, parts of Paula Fields were found, and the mortuary where Glyndor Michael was reborn as a war hero. To my right is the Mount Pleasant sorting office. And that's it. There's a flat, a shop, a pub... But no people. No one comes here. It's dead. Even the postal sorting depot is being demolished. As they turn it into, yes, you've already guessed it, posh flats for overpaid tosspots. Who won't stay here, but are willing to fork out four grand a month so they've got somewhere to dump their dirty pants, hide their hummus, quaff quinoa, shag their secretary, and all as a tax write-off. How romantic! Anticipating this rejuvenation, at number 1 Calthorpe Street, they've built the Crown Plaza. A four star hotel with restaurants, a gym, a spa, and a swimming pool. Ooh! With tourists on the inside and homeless on the outside, the only people in this area are either hobos or hoity toity, vagrants or Volvo owners tramps or fans of Tara or drifters, and dullards who only live for the latest dross on Netflix. Before its demolition, on this site stood Roten House. Built in 1892, Roten House was one of five lodging houses in London, built by Lord Roten, which provided a bed, warmth and food for London's low-paid workers and its down-and-outs. Being six stories high, in a stark Victorian style, with bright red bricks and sharp turrets, it looked more like an asylum than a hostel. But with 678 beds, at a cost of just one shilling a night, for many men, it beats sleeping on the streets. And yet, it was here that a bald, bespectacled little man in a brown trilby hat and a fawn raincoat, would spend his final days of freedom. Born on the 8th of April, 1899, in Blackboy House in Aykroydon near Halifax, John Reginald Halliday Christie, nicknamed Reggie, was the second youngest of seven children, with one older brother, four older sisters and one younger sister, all born to Mary Hannah Halliday, a loving housewife and an overprotective mother, an Ernest John Christie, a working-class carpenter with a haughty demeanour, an explosive temper and a burning desire for respectability. Therefore, it's ironic that as much as Reg claimed to despise his father, he would spend most of his life trying to emulate him, and when shamed by his own sense of failure, Reg would lie. As an officious man with a senior role in the Methodist Church, the Conservative Association, and later the Town Council, as the only person in the factory trained in first aid, Ernest was nicknamed Dr. Christie, a name he loved, as it alluded to him being a man of higher status in a middle-class profession. But to his son, Reg knew he had a lot to live up to. Unlike Ernest, Reg was small, skinny and slight. A shy boy with pale ginger hair and a limp handshake. And even being adored by his mother and protected by his sisters, he would become quiet, withdrawn and suppress his anger. As being beaten for even the smallest of reasons, he hid in his father's shadow and lived in fear of his wrath. In fact, the only time that they spoke was while gardening. A hobby they both loved, giving Reg a rare moment of peace with his father, which he would cherish. In 1910, aged 11, as a good student who never got into trouble, kept to himself and excelled at maths, Reg won a scholarship to Halifax Secondary School. Being bright but timid, just like his father, Rich threw himself into extracurricular activities, like singing in the All Souls Church Choir and rising to the lofty position of King Scout and Assistant Scout leader in the church's troop. And yet, for all of his hard work, his mother lavished him with love but praise never came from his father. As a hobby, it may have seemed innocent enough, having achieved a high-status position in the scouts, but more importantly, it instilled in Reg the importance of rank, uniform and status, in winning over the trust and confidence of others, and this knowledge would shape the rest of his life. If the statements of Reg Christie are to be believed, there were three key moments in his upbringing which led him on the path to becoming a rapist, a serial killer and a necrophile. First, in 1911, as part of a Victorian Methodist custom, the body of his maternal grandfather, David Halliday, was laid out for the family to view prior to burial. Having been petrified of this stern-faced bully, Reg realised that this motionless corpse could no longer hurt him. And from that point onwards, Reg became fascinated by death. Secondly, raised in an almost exclusively female household, during a sexually repressive era where nudity was taboo, during his childhood... He claimed he caught a brief glimpse of his sister's stocking top and this brief thrill brought about within him strange feelings. And thirdly, as a sexually inexperienced 16-year-old virgin, Reg and two friends went to an infamous lover's lane in Savile Park, known as the Monkey Run. Having paired off with a young lady who he would later describe as a mill girl of loose morals. Although his chums easily copulated, Reg stood there, trembling and ashamed, his limp penis in his hand, as the girl mercilessly mocked him. As did his friends, as did anyone who knew him, as, at least in his eyes, across his hometown, his failure was marked with a chorus of kids chanting, Reggie No-Cock, and can't get it up Christy. Reg wouldn't lose his virginity for at least another year, and for the rest of his life, he would fear sexual failure, hate morally loose women, and bottled up inside him would remain this shame. As a teenager, Reg seemed like an upstanding boy, Who graduated with a school certificate, worked as a projectionist at Green's Picture Hall, and also worked as a warehouse boy at a bootmaker's called John Foster and Sons. But inside, being raised as a repressed Methodist, Reg was a mess of deep moral conflict. On the 19th of September 1916, age 17, two years into the First World War. Reg enlisted in the 52nd Nottingham and Derbyshire Signal Corps and was posted to the Redmire's camp in Sheffield. With a rank, a role and a uniform, the army should have been his making. But he was never promoted and yet claimed he had turned it down three times. He never excelled and yet he claimed he had won many marksmanship competitions. And during his 16 months of service... He was charged twice for going absent without leave, having snuck off base to visit prostitutes. Women of loose morals, who he claimed to despise, and yet, in his eyes, they were the only women who wouldn't mock him, having been paid to be submissive to his needs. Having been mobilised one year earlier, on the 1st of April 1918, the 50-second signal Corps was posted to Flanders on the Belgian front line, barely a quarter of a mile from the German troops, who were dug deep in their trenches. After four years of brutal conflict, the lush fields were a mess of muddy bogs, bum craters and jagged reels of barbed wire, on which hung the festering corpses of fallen comrades. As shells burst eardrums, Bullets blew faces apart, boots sloshed in a sea of blood, and the acrid air was thick with the stench of decomposing bodies. In total, Reg saw active duty for just 11 weeks, but in that short traumatic period, he saw enough death to last a lifetime. Or so you would think. On the 28th of June 1918, Private Christie was injured when a mustard gas shell exploded near him. Having knocked him unconscious, plumes of the lethal chemical weapon swirled about him, choking him to death, as if, lying there, helpless and vulnerable, an overpowering force had gripped his throat. Having miraculously survived, when Reg awoke, The gas would render him blind for five months, mute for three and a half years, and although hospitalised for 32 days, his voice was never the same. For his injuries, Private Christie was granted a weekly disability allowance of eight shillings, and for his bravery, he was awarded the British War and Victory Medal. At least, that was the story that he told. In truth, his medical notes confirm he had no blisters on his skin, lungs, or throat. He was never treated for an eye injury. And that, having been diagnosed with functional aphonia, an injury caused not by gas inhalation, but by fright, there was no known medical reason why his voice remained as a soft whisper. And yet, his injury proved invaluable to elicit sympathy from women and to aid his story as an injured war hero. On the 22nd of October 1919, Private John Christie was demobilized from the army. That day, he lost his role, his rank, his uniform and his wage. And with no skills, a small disability allowance and an insatiable thirst for sex workers, Reg started work at Sutcliffe's Woollen Mill in Halifax Began dating Ethel Simpson, and on the 10th of May 1920, in Halifax registry office, she became Mrs. Ethel Christie. During those first few years of married life, Reg was shamed by three incidents, all of his own undoing. First, only able to become aroused by sexually submissive prostitutes, he failed to get Ethel pregnant. Second, being regularly unemployed and convicted twice for theft, he failed to provide as a husband. And third, having failed to live up to his father's high morals, he was disowned by his family. Feeling deeply ashamed, Reg left his hometown of Halifax, moved to London and abandoned Ethel for nine years. But his new life in the big city would start badly, and would descend deeper into despair and debauchery. In 1924, just one year later, while cycling in the West End, Reg was hit by a taxi, knocked unconscious, and suffered minor injuries to his right shoulder, left knee and head. That same year, being unemployed, homeless, broke, and hopelessly addicted to sex, Reg was found guilty of two counts of theft, having stolen a bicycle, money and cigarettes, and was sentenced to a further nine months' hard labour. For the next eight years, he tried to go straight, but being unskilled, he drifted between jobs, until once again, he was sent back to prison. But this time, His personality had taken a darker turn. On the 1st of May 1929, after six months of cohabiting with Maud Cole in her ground floor flat at No. 6 Almeric Road in Battersea, South London, being fed up with Reg leeching off her, Maud asked him to leave as she and her son sat eating a meal of fish and chips at the kitchen table. Silently, Reg got up, as if to leave. But having swiped her son's cricket bat, he smacked her hard across the back of the head. Everything went black. Blood poured from the gaping wound and Christy forced his fingers into her throat as she screamed, Don't let him get me! He's trying to murder me! Maud survived the attack, needing only five stitches. Two weeks later, Reg was tried at South Western Magistrates' Court, and having claimed that this vicious and unprovoked assault was an accident, the magistrate branded him a liar and a coward, and Reg Christie was sentenced to six months' hard labour in Wandsworth Prison. In November 1933, a priest convinced Christie to break his self-destructive cycle and to turn over a new leaf. Convinced that the only good thing in his life was his wife, Reg asked Ethel to take him back, and with her affair to Vaughan Brindley over, and faced with the shame of divorce, they gave their marriage one last go. And so, in December 1938, the Christie's moved into the ground-floor flat at 10 Rillington Place. From 1943 to 1953, nine people would die. A death toll which in any other era would raise an eyebrow. But having occurred during the London Blitz and the post-war chaos, as he preyed on the homeless, the penniless, the sick, the poor and the pregnant, for a whole decade, a serial killer walked the streets of London, murdering with impunity and although on the outside he exuded the arrogance of a man who was getting away with murder, on the inside, having been raised as morally decent, his ailing body was riddled with shame. Between 1937 and 1952, Reg Christie made 174 visits to the surgery of Dr. Matthew Odess in Colville Square. Being plagued with fibrositis, diarrhoea, headaches and piles. And although as a hypochondriac, who craved sympathy through exaggerated and imaginary illnesses, and visited his doctor at least once a month for those 15 years, his pattern of sickness has an eerie regularity. From February to August 1949, Six years after the murders of Ruth First and Muralidi, being in regular work and good health, Reg made no visits to Dr. Odess. That September, having been told that his attractive, 20-year-old co-tenant Beryl Evans was pregnant, his nervous diarrhoea returned. On the 19th of November 1949, ten days after Beryl and Geraldine's murder, And the disposal of their bodies. Ridge returned to Dr. Odess, complaining of fibrositis in the left lumbar muscles of his back. At his trial, Dr. Odess stated it was caused not by stress, but by physical strain, having lifted something heavy. From January to March 1950, across the trial and the execution of Timothy Evans, having complained of violent headaches, and coincidentally, memory loss, Reg was signed off work with depression. Two months later, Reg was fit, well, and didn't return to Dr. Odess for almost a year. And then, in the eight months prior to Ethel's death and his last killing spree, he would visit Dr. Odess 32 times. Very little makes sense in the final year of Reg Christie. In April 1950, he asked to be rehoused owing to ill health, even though there were two bodies buried in his back garden. In May 1951, he took out a life insurance policy on himself and his wife, but there would be no payout if she was missing or murdered. And on the 6th of December 1952, days before her death, Reg quit a well paying job at British Road Services for no reason and with no disability allowance or savings, he stopped his only regular income. Being broke, on the 17th of December, he sold her twenty-two carat gold ring and gold wristwatch at Barnet Pressman's Jewellers in Shepherd's Bush. On the 8th of January 1953, he sold most of his furniture to Robert J. Hookway for twelve pounds. On the twenty-seventh of January, he emptied Ethel's bank account of ten pounds, fifteen shillings, and sixpence, having falsified her signature, and being two months behind with his rent. On Friday, the twentieth of March, nineteen fifty-three, having rented out his flat, which he didn't own, to Mary and John O'Reilly at a cost of seven pounds and thirteen shillings. Wearing a brown Trilby hat, a fawn raincoat, clutching three suitcases, and with Judy on her lead, Reg left 10 Rillington Place forever. And yet, there was one more death to come at the hands of Reg Christie. That day having visited Ernest Jacobs at 132 Clarendon Road in Labra Grove, handed over five shillings, produced his dog license and shown her badly infected eye to the vet. Even though she had been his faithful mongrel for 12 years, Judy was placed in the lethal chamber and put to sleep. By 8pm, having walked five miles from Rillington Place and checked into a six-story lodging house in King's Cross called Roton House. Here he gave his name, address, ID, and paid for one week, but only stayed for three nights. And as he lay on the itchy woolen sheets of a single bed in a dormitory full of 50 scratching hobos and snoring tramps, whereas once he was a war hero, a police constable, and a married man, Now Reg Christie was nothing, with no family to turn to and no friends to trust. Mary and John Riley had a sleepless first night in their ground-floor flat at 10 Rillington Place, as the trains thundered by and the lice scuttled along the walls. But what kept them awake was the smell, and having cleaned thoroughly and opened all of the windows, still... A fetid rotten stench lingered in the flat. Four days later, on Tuesday, the 24th of March 1953, Beresford Brown, a tenant in the second floor flat, and was due to be moved into the ground floor flat as Reg had illegally rented it out to the Rileys, he was given permission by the landlord to renovate the kitchen. With his work cut out, as Beresford washed, wiped, and stripped the filthy stinking kitchen, eager to nail up a set of brackets for his wireless radio, as he tapped on the rear wall, it gave a reassuringly solid thud. But four feet to the left, the wall sounded hollow. Given the shape of the room, and with its wooden door nailed shut, Beresford thought it was an old coal cellar, so eager for more storage space, as he pulled away a six-inch strip of hastily stuck-up wallpaper off the corner. With a small torch, he peered inside the darkness of the kitchen alcove. Prying open the alcove door, the police were greeted by a macabre sight of a naked woman kneeling her back to the door, her feet folded under her buttocks, and sitting upright as if she was praying, her dirt-covered body was kept erect by her bra, which had been secured around a ceiling hook. But as they moved her, they saw that she wasn't alone. In total, the bodies of three unidentified women were found in the alcove, all had been bound, raped and strangled, and with their knickers missing, their pubic hair removed and overcome by near-lethal levels of carbon monoxide, all had been asphyxiated with either a stocking, a tie or a length of rope. Taken to Kensington mortuary their identification would pose no problem. As having been reported by her landlady, Hannah Reese, the next day, At 6.30 p.m., May Langridge of 80 Lagbro Grove identified the body of her sister, 25-year-old Rita Nelson. At 7 p.m., a local prostitute known as Kitty Foley identified 26-year-old Kathleen Maloney. And having found in the dustbin a sports jacket, cufflinks, and a driving license belonging to Alexander Pomeroy Baker, at 8 p.m., Donald and Robert McClellan identified their sister, 27-year-old Hectorina McClellan. The crime scene was simple, and with the ground floor flat being small and most of the furniture sold, the search was swift and thorough. Noticing another strong rotten stench emanating from the front room, as he wrenched up a loose floorboard, Chief Inspector Griffin discovered a fourth body. With her wedding ring missing, her bank account empty, and all of the neighbors stating that she was either in Sheffield, Brighton, Northampton or Reading. At 4:30 p.m, that same day, Henry Waddington identified the body under the floorboards as that of his sister, 54-year-old Ethel Christie. And yet, 10 Rillington Place still had more secrets to reveal. Two days later, when police lifted up an old metal dustbin in the rear corner of the garden, the bottom fell away and out fell fragments of burnt and broken bones. Digging two feet deep, they found the skeletal remains of two unidentified females. But having been buried almost a decade ago, with no facial features, fingerprints, or ID, and with one skull missing and the other smashed into 92 pieces, a positive identification would be next to impossible. Except, with the second skeleton matching a missing persons report dated the 4th of November 1944 and the severed second and third vertebrae matching a skull found in a bombed-out house at 133 St Mark's Road, the body was positively ID'd as 32-year-old Muriel Edie. And having painstakingly reconstructed the badly smashed skull and spotted an unusual metal crown in her upper right molar, having identified this as the work of an Austrian dentist called Dr Heinrich Blask a surgery he had performed 23 years earlier. The first skeleton was positively identified as 21-year-old Austrian refugee Ruth First. And yet, 10 Place still had even more secrets to reveal. As the police searched a rubbish pile in the garden... Amongst the burnt papers and charred clothes, they spied a small metal box of Lewis and Burroughs Giesling pastels. Every lozenge had been eaten and the box was empty, except for four matted clumps of pubic hair. Having exhumed her corpse in Gunnersbury Cemetery, the pubic hair didn't match Beryl Evans. Having checked her body in Kensington Mortuary, the pubic hair didn't match Ethel Christie. And although three of the matted clumps matched Rita Nelson, Kathleen Maloney and Hectorina McClellan, a fourth clump of pubic hair was never identified. The grisly murders at 10 Rillington Place were front-page news. The name on everyone's lips was John Reginald Halliday Christie and his photo adorned every paper emblazoned with the words Will the killer strike again as Britain was gripped with the terror that a sadistic serial killer was on the run Only he wasn't exactly on the run On Tuesday the 31st of March 1953 at 9:10 a.m. Police Constable Thomas Ledger was patrolling the south bank of the River Thames, just shy of Putney Bridge, when he noticed a dishevelled man in a crumpled fawn raincoat, leaning over the embankment wall as he idly watched a river barge being loaded. Growing suspicious that the unkempt man was a vagrant, P.C. Ledger questioned him. What are you doing here? Looking for work? Yes, but my employment cards haven't come through. What's your name and address? John Waddington, 35 Westbourne Gardens.
1: Have you anything to prove your identity? No, nothing at all.
2: Not believing the man's story, P.C. Ledger demanded,
1: Remove your
2: hat. Which the man dutifully did. And being 5 foot 8 inches tall, 54 years old, with a very recognisable bald head, thick lensed spectacles, and false teeth which slipped. P.C. Ledger stated, You're Christy. Reg nodded. P.C. Ledger said, You better come with me. And that was that. At 10.45am on the 31st of March 1953 at Putney Police Station, Detective Inspector Kelly charged Reg Christy with murder. And it was then... When prompted by overwhelming evidence, that he gave the bulk of his statements, of the few items he had on his person, was his marriage certificate and a photo of his wife. Having been declared sane and confessed to the murder of Beryl Evans, but not Geraldine Evans, the trial of John Reginald Halliday Christie began on Monday, the twenty-second of June, nineteen fifty-three. In Court 1 of the Old Bailey. Tried on a specimen charge for the murder of Ethel Christie, when asked how he pleaded, Reg replied, Not guilty. And although he remained calm throughout, his memory of the murders was patchy. At the end of the four day trial, on Thursday, the 25th of June, 1953, Having deliberated for just 1 hour and 20 minutes, the jury returned and unanimously found John Reginald Halliday Christie guilty. Transferred to Pentonville Prison to await his execution, although his grey prison fatigues were the only uniform in his life that he despised wearing. He adored the notoriety of being an infamous serial killer, Confined to the condemned man's cell, Christie whiled away his final days by playing dominoes, reading books, cutting out newspaper articles about himself and he would happily discuss the details of the trial with his guards. Comparing himself to infamous murderers like John George Haig and relishing the fact that tabloid newspaper The Sunday Pictorial offered him £27,000 for his life story. Although he was described as neat, friendly and quiet, an unassuming little man who spoke fondly of his wife, doctors concluded that he was a conceited egocentric with no remorse for any of his victims. And as witnessed by prison officer Joseph Hornsby, he was a deluded sexual predator. As when Officer Hornsby guided the prisoner to the toilet to urinate, Reg Christie turned to the prison guard, held his exposed penis in his hand, and said, The ladies love this. On the morning of Wednesday, the 15th of July, 1953, in the execution chamber of Pentonville Prison, where three years earlier Timothy John Evans had been hung, at 9 a.m. precisely, with his execution having been meticulously planned, so it caused no unnecessary distress. The executioner, Albert Pierpoint, swung open the twin trap doors. The prisoner plunged a seven-foot and six-inch drop, and with the dislocation of his third and fourth vertebrae, Reg Christie was dead. Unlike his victims, he felt no pain. Ironically, he was strangled by a length of rope, and as a man who struggled with impotence, it was his hanging which caused him to ejaculate. With new evidence having come to light, the murders of Beryl and Geraldine Evans were re-evaluated. Timothy John Evans was found not guilty, and with the British establishment rocked by the revelation that an innocent man had been executed. In 1965... The death penalty was abolished. One year later, Timothy John Evans was granted a posthumous royal pardon, and his remains were reburied on consecrated ground. The body of John Reginald Halliday Christie remains, to this day, buried within the walls of Pentonville Prison. And as much as his name is infamous in the annals of true crime, and his ghastly deeds have gone down in infamy. Let us not forget those ten names, who history has cruelly consigned to being just mere footnotes in his dirty little life. They were Ruth First, Muriel Eady, Beryl Evans, Timothy Evans, Geraldine Evans, Ethel Christie, Rita Nelson, Kathleen Maloney, Hectorina McClellan, all of their unborn babies and his mongrel dog Judy. This was their story.